I'm here with Jonathan Levin, the co-founder and CSO of Chainalysis. We're here at the Royal Tulip Hotel in Brasilia, capital of Brazil. Jonathan's been in Brazil here for about a week now. Came to the AB Crypto Conference here in Brasilia. And you're also in Sao Paulo earlier doing some meetings. But Jonathan, great to have you on the show. Welcome here. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Great. So to get started, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself and what is Chainalysis? So I'm, you know, the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Chainalysis. I, uh, I'm also a recovering economist. I've been spending a bunch of time at the, with the uh, central bank folks here in Brasilia. And it's a good reminder that I did actually start out in crypto as an economist and been having a lot more of those conversations. But, you know, I really started off in, in cryptocurrency about 11 years ago doing economic research into the incentives that secure Bitcoin and realized at that point that actually there needed to be a company that knows how and why people are actually using cryptocurrencies. Mm. At the time, it was just Bitcoin, really. But, you know, we, we decided that there needs to be a company that can actually take all of this public and open data and actually make it understandable for the general population and for all the businesses and governments that needed to understand what was actually happening in cryptocurrencies. And so that was really the genesis of why I sort of got interested in what we do at Chainalysis. And I met Michael and Jan, my two co-founders at Chainalysis, who are two Danish guys who were actually doing a different projects. Michael was a co-founder at Kraken. Jan had built the sort of original and first Android Bitcoin wallet called Bitcoin Spinner. And so we, we actually have a, the three of us came at with different angles. But ultimately, all of us said that, you know, there needs to be this company that knows the most about how and why people use crypto. And we really found that, like, we could actually package up that information and give it to all the relevant stakeholders. And sort of what we've seen over time at Chain Analysis is that it's been sort of the different parts of the industry that have used us for different reasons. And so right. we have a public sector business, which you know, is really great at, you know, knowing how we can actually, like, prevent criminal activity and supervise the market. And then there's also been, you know, our private sector business, which is about how businesses can, you know, prevent money laundering on their platforms and essentially deal with the risk associated with that. Got it, got it. And in this kind of emergent field of, of blockchain analytics, if, if that's how you want to define what you guys are doing, I mean, there's all kind of a whole swarm of these types of companies out there now. But I think you guys are really sort of the pioneers who are you know, kind of the first and, and you know, arguably like the gold standard for these types of com these types of companies in this kind of subsector of, of crypto. Maybe just talk a bit about like what what maybe kind of differentiates chain analysis from like, you know, some of the other competitors or the other the other companies operating in this niche. Yeah. So I think that, you know, there's a couple of different things that that matter. I mean, ultimately, we are a, a data company, so we, we think about ourselves as you know, making sure that we take all of this publicly available information, which allows there to be like everyone can look at the blockchain, but who has the most context about how and why people are actually using this mm. technology? And so you know, it comes back to like, do you have like proprietary data collection strategies that are better or more comprehensive than you know, the other, the other companies in the space. And so, you know, we have over 750 private sector companies that use us for some form of 
you know, anti-money laundering transaction monitoring. And so all of that information feeds into our database about what's happening. You know, we've been at this longer than everyone, anyone else in the space today. So we have that deeper history of what was happening at that time. And that's actually particularly important in cryptocurrencies because actually like the one thing the blockchain does really perfectly and better than any other system is that it perfectly preserves all the transaction histories for all time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I often say is that you know there will be a, a law enforcement case or a scam or, or something happens in you know where in twenty years time you know someone is you know caught because of a mistake they made, you know, and it's there lying in our data from six years ago. Mm-hmm. And like that means that you had to be there six years ago really capturing that information in order to have sort of the best information about knowing what's going on today. And so you know, really the data aspect is something that you know differentiates us from you know a lot of the competition. Um, but also the breadth of our platform now is you know a lot broader than you know any of the competition. We're significantly larger, well more capitalized, but but in terms of like the the product offerings that we have, you know, they stretch from you know being sort of more on the raw data side. So we we acquired a company last week called Transpose, which allows you know any builder to just like access raw blockchain data but all the way to like you know our real-time apis on our on our compliance stack and you know our workflow products that actually talk between sort of different entities that use our products so they like the solution set that we've now developed and we've we've now also launched into sort of business intelligence and for exchange customers with a product called Playbook. And so the breadth of the solutions and ways to access our unique insights has actually become a lot broader than anyone in the sort of like blockchain analysis field, which I feel is sort of, you know, really the investigation and compliance suite. We're actually a much now broader platform than that. Yeah. And as a journalist, anytime there's like a new chain analysis sort of research report that drops on anything, there's all, it's always kind of like, okay, I got to stop and, you know, stop what I'm doing and like see what this is all about, right? Because there's always some kind of new, unique insights or whether it's the, you know, the, the geography of cryptocurrency report that you guys put out every year, which is, it's kind of the gold standard in the industry of like who's doing what where in this industry. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I haven't been able to find a better source. I mean, it's not, it's not a perfect source, but there's nothing better out there at this point, right? Yeah. So I think that's kind of the gold standard as far as, you know, trying to map out just how, uh, just how how you know how robust this industry is worldwide and where kind of the hot spots are, et cetera. I guess on that note, Brazil came in seventh on the on your most recent report. Yeah, and you're obviously here right now, doing some business development, meeting some people. Why don't you tell us a bit about you know a like why you're here, and b maybe who you've been talking to, what those meetings have been, you know what's been what's been particularly interesting. Yeah, I mean, so we actually we look at our geo, geo our cryptocurrency adoption index for. for the world and and look at like what markets are the most interesting so we we sort of eat our own dog food if you will like <laughs> i also am excited of when it comes out and we look at like do we have the right strategy for the different countries where we think cryptocurrency adoption is biggest and so you know brazil coming in seventh globally means that it's something that you know something to pay attention to you know, i've been in sao paulo and, and now in brasilia sort of the financial capital of brazil and and the uh and the, obviously the government center of Brazil. 
and you know both are very interesting dynamics of you know where where we're at i've been uh super impressed with the way that the dialogue is occurring between the government and the industry i've been to multiple events where you know really you know government employees and industry are speaking sort of the same language about describing what is happening in upcoming regulation and sort of what those considerations are and it's you know great to see that sao paulo was was great to see i saw everyone from sort of smaller startup entrepreneurs building sort of local tax solutions and you know i also saw you know the credit credits team who are building like sort of innovative credit products on blockchains for you know foreign investors to get exposure into brazil i saw you know really a range of different companies that are serving the market as well as sort of the larger banks and so you know, i spent time with some of the the leading banks in the space and impressive to see you know how some of them have launched a stablecoin and some of them have you know been looking at custody more seriously and really sort of the conversation that everyone is having is that you know, it's clear that this is a fertile market for everyone to participate in and you know everyone is sort of eagerly waiting for the latest sort of regulatory guidance to drop which you know the deadline is this month so yeah, yeah. i think the one thing that's that's sort of it's impossible to not notice about Brazil is just kind of how fervent the financial innovation ecosystem is just with, you know, you've probably heard about picks, picks. and you yeah. know, things like, you know, you can buy a coconut from a guy on the side of the road just by like scanning a QR code on your phone. You know, it's like, it's, you know, things like this that you don't really see in other places, right? And this has kind of been held up as the model for an instant payment solution, kind of open source interoperable instant payment solution that, you know, a lot of other central banks are looking to copy now globally. And I, my, my, my sort of thesis is that I think that, that that is also going to happen with the digital rail. I think there's going to be a lot of folks trying to sort of imitate what they've developed here because I think, I mean, it's still in development, right? But I think they've got kind of the right model that if this is this is something that could work in practice, right? And they've, they've proven that they can deliver on this previously, right? It's not just, you know, the guys in the ivory tower, you know, coming up with ideas. Yeah. These things, they actually have a track record delivering on this stuff. Um, so that's super interesting. And, they, and they've, you know, the, the banks have all, and the, and the fintechs here have all really kind of been quite advanced in the, in the, in, in terms of just, Thinking innovatively about the technology, about digital assets, incorporating these things, offering these things to their clients uh, in a way that's, that I think is, you know, it's quite a bit different than the U.S. at least in terms of just the, the maturation of this, you know, moving these things into actual production. I'd like to ask a bit more about, like, what have been, I mean, what have been kind of the most intriguing, like, kind of questions that people have had for you? Like, when you're meeting with folks in Central Bank or, yeah. or private sector folks or startups, like, what are the, what are the questions that people have had for you? And as far as, you know, what type of value can you bring to them? Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things that is constantly occurring in the conversation is how do we compare to the rest of the world? Mm. Most of, yeah, how do we compare to the rest of the world? How do we compare to other countries in Latin America? And, you know, there's definitely a whole benchmarking sort of exercise that people are doing. And, you know, chain analysis, we, we have people on the ground in 32 countries around the world. I spend my time on a plane going to those countries, making sure that, like, I understand what's happening. And, you know, the, the observations that we have based on sort of the trends that we see on the adoption of technology is, is something that, you know, the big banks are definitely curious about as they get more mature. You know, they want to know, you know, how, how are people dealing with, you know, stable coins in you know that have 
you know, broader circulation? How are people dealing with, like, can you help with analyzing sort of the risks that come with that? And can you help with, you know, more real-time access to information to make decisions? And how are you thinking about sort of rule sets of different risk models for Brazil in particular than mm. anywhere else? I think the other thing that people, uh, you know, more interestingly in Brazil have spoken to me about is that there've been some relatively high profile investment scams here in Brazil and that really harms the credibility of the industry and i think that making sure that there's capacity on the government side to deal with that as well as sort of the private sector having the tools in place to help the government have been like the theme that that i've seen from some of my conversations particularly on the industry level that seems to be like a blocking factor of of getting more adoption yeah these this might be a great subject, actually, for a chain analysis, uh, kind of, you know, content research deep dive into some of these <laughs> financial pyramid schemes that we've had here. They're, they're kind of like larger than life stories in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely been an issue here is sort of unearthing these things. And, and, and I mean, they, when these things blow up, it's like they obviously have pretty big repercussions and it's, it's a lot of negative headlines and, and, you know, it just hurts a lot of retail investors, unfortunately, which, which is obviously a setback for the industry. We'd like to get your thoughts on, Coming back to kind of the regulatory component here, like you mentioned Brazil's, you know, we're in the process of getting regulation here. We've got a law that's been passed. Now we're in the process of, of trying to get kind of, well, there's a few steps to getting an actual framework in place, but th- those steps are in motion right now. Maybe talk a bit about how, and maybe even bringing in your, your, your global vantage point here of how other countries have been wrestling with this. But now that we're in the point where we're a bit mature, we're, we're kind of moving toward a regulatory framework, how does, how, how can regulators kind of you know, successfully use tools, the tools that you guys are, are providing to, to help kind of build out, you know, a safe, a, a safe and, and sort of efficient regulatory regime for this industry? Yeah. So we, we start with really sort of the policy side. So, you know, when it comes to, you know, regulating the space, each geography is a little bit different. The use of cryptocurrency is a little bit different. You know, for example, in Brazil, sort of the leading trading pair on most days is is actually between a stablecoin and the and the and the Brazilian real, and so that's a very different sort of environment than some other geographies, uh, if you will. And so, getting a macro picture of how cryptocurrency is being used in the geography is actually a very sort of significant step on the policy side to make sure that you're you know thinking about those considerations properly and like prioritizing the right actual sort of regulatory framework aspects that that maybe are different for brazil than they are for you know another country and so if we start with sort of helping shape you know what are the requirements around sort of sort of global level data or like macro level data about the industry the questions that the policy side of the you know, regulators have in order to help with that and we're doing a lot of work we have a global policy team that does a ton of engagement around the world getting those requirements per geography and understanding how our data can actually help with creating dashboards and other things that that policy people in the regulators can actually do once once then you know we've you know we've seen in brazil that there's a prioritization on you know making sure that the the virtual asset service providers are regulated that they have a a licensing program you know then there's a couple of other steps typically start to occur there's uh, you know, the supervision aspects of the industry and the monitoring of the industry, which happen at that level where, you know, they want to be 
sort of the most advanced regulators are wanting to be proactive about that, that they see that there is you know, a set of information that is out there that can help with supervision, can help with monitoring, and they have to be able to you know, look at anomalies and look at sort of patterns that, that they need to, to understand, you know, is the sector evolving differently? Have we missed some significant market players that should have been licensed that mm. weren't licensed? And so, you know, there's really a monitoring aspect of the market that we, we typically see regulators get involved in all the way down to examinations and then ultimately enforcement where you know, on the examination front, you know, we have regulators around the world that actually use us to look at the ways, look at the data of the licensees, like the VASPs, the, you know, the exchanges, et cetera, and to be able to sort of take the reporting information that they receive in examinations. And for those listeners that don't know what examinations are, they're not, they're not high school examinations. They're <laughs> sort of on-site examinations where regulators come in and want to understand sort of the controls around, you know, anti-money laundering and other types of regulatory requirements that people have. And, you know, they take data about, you know, what the customer is doing and, and making sure that there is like a way for the regulator to actually visualize that data and understand that data is something that you know, our technology has been used for. Sure. And then ultimately, like on the enforcement side, investigating where money went and and particularly important for you know some of the complex cases that we saw you know these sort of larger investment schemes sort of collapse you know our technology gets used to be able to really break those apart and and untangle where the money has gone and and help hold those people to account yeah and it seems like anytime there's some sort of major investigation or something involving cryptocurrency, whether it's a government or whether it's, a, you know, trying to unearth the DAO hacker, right? It's, it's, they're always using chain analysis data in some capacity, right? There's always kind of the, that, yeah. that trail of data that's, that's being, you know, kind of guess, harvested and, and utilized, manipulated to, to sort of, you know, track the whereabouts and the movements of the funds and everything. Um, maybe, you know, a couple, you know, a couple more questions here, but as far as, you know, obviously we are, in Brazil here, we're in the point where we're at the beginning of creating a regulatory regime that will, you know, I think we have, you know, there's, there's competent people in place to kind of to do this. There's a law in the books. What are some, you know, maybe practical advice you would give to, you know, kind of the regulators who are, who are in charge of implementing this? I mean, what are some maybe lessons learned that you've witnessed in like other jurisdictions or, or maybe just like, you know, things to avoid doing <laughs> maybe yeah. that you kind of encountered in other places that are maybe at the same you know maturity or maybe more mature than, than than brazil right now yeah i mean look i've been super impressed with the technical competence of people that i've met at the regulators here i mean sometimes i go to a new like a country that i haven't been to before and you know the the actual sort of like education level or on the technology is just you know, much more rudimentary than it is here in Brazil. Like in Brazil, you know, the president of the central bank, you know, mined Bitcoin at some <laughs> point. Like that, that's like a whole different like level of understanding about the technology uh, than what you, you've seen in sort of other places, right? So um, the, uh, like the, the know-how and the technology depth of understanding is definitely there in terms of like the people. The question becomes, you know, can you prioritize the right um, sort of regulatory framework aspects? And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, in some, in some aspects, you know, you've got 
you've got DeFi, you've got NFTs, like lots of complexity that, that is possible to engage with. The, the trick is, is that you know, starting with establishing a smaller regulatory perimeter on the most used and most impactful pieces of legislation to protect con the average consumer is far more important than being comprehensive mm. on the entire regulatory framework for the sector. If you look at Mika, Mika was very specific on what was excluded from the regulatory perimeter in version one versus you know, trying to be the all-encompassing you know, comprehensive framework. And it is comprehensive in the sense of like the main activities, but don't try and be sort of you know, completely comprehensive to try and imagine you know, what is it going to mean when you know, AI bots have wallets <laughs> associated with them. You know, I've been in policy meetings where you know, suddenly that becomes like the fixation of like, well, we need to future-proof this to the point of like, you know, that aspect. So I think that that's the first thing is like, make sure that the, the regulatory perimeter makes a lot of sense and make sure that it's you know, focused on protecting the consumers and investors that it should be protecting and protecting our national security. So that's like the first point. The second point is that you know, rules on the book are, are great. Rules on the book are only half of the battle. Like the next part is operationalizing and actually making sure that people are following rules on the book. And what that requires is both capacity planning on the staffing of the regulator um, and the sort of attitude that the regulator has towards the industry, right? So it's got to be constant engagement. If it's just, you know, here's a set of rules, there's the web form, you know, talk to us in a bit, you know, that has a different sort of set of reaction from an industry to, you know, actually what I see in Brazil today, which is this constant dialogue. There's lots of, um, you know, there's lots of shared language. There's lots of shared understanding of what is important for the Brazilian economy. And, you know, then there needs to be capacity on the regulator side to do the licensing properly, to do the examinations after licensing, and actually to do the monitoring and supervision. And so, you know, those things are, are definitely um, sort of important aspects to get right, is that those people need technology, as I sort of described, but we also need the people on the ground actually doing that work. I would say finally in Brazil, like one of the bigger, one of the big challenges is that, you know, when it comes to sort of the egregious activity, when it comes to these investment scams, when it comes to sort of the, the bad actors and weeding them out of the industry, you know, we need to, like the government needs to partner across the industry, across government to be able to do that, right? So the regulator needs to partner up with, you know, the federal police and potentially with also local police to be able to, to address those issues. And, you know, that takes time as well because, you know, these are new these are new bonds between teams you might have like the cyber team in federal police now working with the financial regulator and that hasn't really typically happened before and so that's also an important aspect of getting it right right yeah so it's not, it's not just a set it and forget it type of play right there needs to be kind of you know you need to keep watering the garden essentially there needs to be resources there needs to be staffing these people these staff need to have kind of the adequate tools and the, and the technology and the right relationships with the with the private sector able to really enforce all these rules properly with with kind of that, that end goal of 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 just you know kind of protecting the consumer or, or or you know enforcing you know operationalizing whatever those priorities are 
essentially. So I think that's that's kind of the so it's easy to get caught up in like the big picture of like, oh, these are the things we need to do. We need to future proof this against AI bots or whatever. But it's it's like real immediate need is just like protect people from getting scammed, right? That's kind of the most and protect, you know, against criminals and bad actors. And how do we go about just enabling that? And then yeah. we can worry about the future, like, you know, we'll worry about that when we get there, right? You know, it's, a, yeah. it's a, you know, John, I always like the John Maynard Keynes quote where it's, you know, it's like in the long run, we're all dead. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> let's, yeah. Focus let's, let's, let's focus on here and that. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and, and I think, I think that that's, I think that's honestly the biggest, the bit, the biggest mistake that we see people making. The other, the other sort of like maybe more nuanced thing that I think is sort of important. And I think that there is some understanding of this in Brazil, but you know, it's still, I think, evolving a little bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction is that, look, there are reporting requirements in traditional financial markets that are important for the regulator to get visibility into those markets. You know, I don't, I don't know the Brazilian financial market infrastructure that well, but you could think of like broker dealers having certain reporting requirements to um, uh, to regulators here to be able to understand, to give them information about what's happening, and then that that then leads to supervision. The same type of reporting there will be some reporting requirements that do exist for you know cryptocurrency related businesses here in Brazil, but shaping that in such a way that you don't create onerous burden on the industry and that you fully leverage the potential for the open and transparent nature of the blockchain is an important aspect of getting this regulatory regime right. I mean, we've seen in certain instances, geographies go too far on the type of reporting requirements that are required by virtual asset service providers where that information itself can easily be accessed from the blockchain with the right technology. And so that's something that I think is yeah, an important aspect of, uh, of getting like the, the nuance right inside of this. And it's maybe like a level deeper than... Yeah, and this, this is something that you know, crypto dad Chris Giancarlo has often talked about, right? Where it's, it's like the regulators have kind of the right sort of you know, mindset and the right technology and the right purview into these systems. Like a lot of this stuff can be a lot of the stuff that's manual and like, you know, paper based or whatever, Excel yeah. spreadsheets now, like you could actually automate that using, you know, tools like Chainalysis and by, just by analyzing the data. Right. And we're so really kind of taking that, that more kind of, you know, innovative approach, I guess, toward, toward, you know, like rethinking how do we, what's our, what's our standard for these reporting requirements. Right. And the interesting thing about that is that the build to ingest manual reporting for a new industry is super difficult. Like, actually, like the effort to analyze the publicly available blockchain data is often less technical effort than actually building a brand new system to allow for a new industry to report into, you know, your financial intelligence unit. I mean, I've watched this happen where, you know, the actual, uh, you know, the suspicious activity report filing system in the United States cost an enormous amount of money whereas like actually you know being able to analyze publicly available blockchain information is a fraction of the cost right right yeah exactly you don't you know i mean for every one of these suspicious activity reports that gets filed you need somebody examining it and there's a whole like there's there's just a ton of labor that goes into these things that could you know, you know in theory be be be, be essentially automated or, or streamlined dramatically right based on some of these systems that you're building yeah, I think there's that, and maybe just to, to, to belabor the point a little bit more, there's like an initial build side of that, which is an upfront cost for yeah. all of that. 
The other thing that actually we see geographies do is that they enrich some of the filings that they get from the virtual asset service providers with chain analysis data to understand which mm. should go for manual review and which should not and how to tie maybe some of those different reportings together. The other thing that's nice about you know having an open and transparent ledger is that you actually don't have arbitrary reporting thresholds. So when it comes to sort of most financial reporting in traditional markets, and this could be for suspicious activity with suspicious activity reports, or in the US, there's, there's currency transaction reports as well. They have sort of thresholds where, you know, if this set of transactions is over $10,000, like you need to file this report. The nice thing about having an open database is that, like, you don't need to set an arbitrary threshold of $10,000. Like, you should actually just, you know, pay attention to what matters. Yeah, like, to where, where the funds are coming where, from. Where the funds are coming from, and, like, it doesn't matter whether it's $500 or whether it's 9999 Like, you can actually look at that information in completeness rather than having a subset. That, right. Um, I suppose it'd be easier to weed out people that might be trying to structure these things as well, where instead of, you know, I'm doing a bunch of transactions of, $9,999 to not trigger the $10,000 threshold, but then I'm, yeah. I'm structuring these over a few days or something. And it's yeah. not, maybe not triggering, but you would need, you know, something, a solution like yours would presumably be able to like kind of catch that and be like, hey, yeah. look, there's something kind of fishy going on here. That's might maybe worth a second look. Um, maybe just to kind of close out, I'd love to get your, your quick thoughts on just what's, what's been happening in the US lately with some of these enforcement actions. And obviously you guys don't have a token. You don't broker, you're not brokerage. You don't facilitate trading currencies or anything. But uh, there's this, this broader theme that the industry has been, this narrative that the industry has really been propagating of like, we're going to leave the U.S. if you, you know, we don't essentially get treated the way we want to be treated. And you know, maybe, that's, maybe that's an empty threat, maybe it's not. But you, you are seeing companies, exchanges, and service providers trying to geographically diversify a bit more now than, than maybe in the past, or there's a bit more urgency behind that. So I, I would just like to get your thoughts on, uh, you know, just as a as a as a service provider, you know, based in the U.S., but you're operating globally, or right, I assume you're based in the U.S. Yeah, but operating globally. How has maybe just the you know over the last two years or so with, with, with the U.S. situation, how has that kind of affected your you know push to sort of just geographically diversify? Yeah, I mean, look, like just being very, we're not leaving the U.S. Like yeah. we're we're, we're <laughs> very exactly. much we're very much the company that believes that. Yeah, the U.S. is ultimately one of the most important markets uh, for this technology, and I do I do believe that there will be you know a a good future for crypto in in the United States. I'm actually on the medium long term. I'm not actually you know that worried about crypto being a significant part of the U.S. economy, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually bullish in in that in that sense. I get to now think in sort of longer term horizons than, you know, an entrepreneur who's starting a business today, right? And, you know, that's, that's part of us being able to take longer, longer term views. In terms of like, like what we're witnessing in terms of the dynamics, I think that there's a couple of dynamics that, that are unfolding. Um, venture capital and builders are more willing to go outside of the United States today for investable opportunities and for business building in this sector than they have been previously. Like, I would say that like, if you're starting a business today in Brazil, it is more likely that you could attract capital from the United States of America than it would have been two years ago. Uh, for the same idea, for the same quality of team, like I would say that like the environment in the United States has meant that like, 
people are looking at investable opportunities more broad, more broadly than than they were previously. In terms of like the global companies that you know have been looking at in international expansion, um, look, I think there's I think there's dual there's there's a couple of things going on there. One is there are exciting markets outside of the U.S. popping up. You know there are uh, there are also ways where you know constructive rulemaking on the regulatory front is incredibly important for global standard setting. Mm-hmm. And if that conversation is not happening in the United States, that conversation has to happen outside of the United States to build models for the future frameworks that will ultimately be sort of like brought back into the United States. And so, you know, I think that it is sort of great that we've got, um, you know, companies that are engaging in geographies like the UK, like France, like Singapore, like uh, even in Israel, even in Brazil, right? To actually look at, like, how do you, how do you create models of how to you know, oversee this market? Because that, that, those are, become real sort of stakes in the ground of how the regulation actually does progress globally. Like it's no, it's not just, you know, whatever the United States says becomes the regulatory framework for the world. Like if there are serious countries that are actually building these frameworks, they become like very much models that global countries then look at. And so when you see countries, when you see companies sort of saying that they are, you know, leaving the United States or, or, or thinking about it or expanding more aggressively internationally. To me, it's like there is you know, a real opportunity that lies beyond the boundaries of the United States. But also, you know, there is potential to build these regulatory models that actually become more like global standards than, than just sitting and waiting for Congress to act in America, which right. is not a strategy that that people can can afford to play. Yeah, so it's basically kind of a twofold play here, where you're you're you can look abroad for just new market new market opportunities, but then also there's going to be these conversations on the regulatory kind of framework front that you know for better or worse may not be happening in the U.S. right now, but you can participate in these conversations elsewhere with the hopes of basically reimporting them back into the U.S. eventually when things maybe kind of settle down a little bit. Um, so maybe just wrap up question here, but what's been your favorite part about Brazil so far? Any favorite foods that you've enjoyed yeah uh, well i went to i actually went to mita festival in sao paulo which is a, a music festival downtown where, oh wow uh yeah got to got to see a bunch of bands playing like right in the middle of downtown sao paulo which is probably not an area that i would normally go to if there wasn't like a fence around all of the <laughs> place that we were in but i uh yeah, I got to see some some great bands play and and also see like some of the architecture of like the old sao paulo and see some of the you know, changes that we're seeing, you know, I saw there was a huge office block that was um, converted into actual residential housing, like right in the middle of downtown. And I saw all the lights on inside the uh, inside the office building, well, now flat building, like watching the watching the concerts in, in open air, which was which was fun. And, you know, I think that um, the the exciting part is that, you know, it's very easy to do business here. It's very, people are extremely helpful and friendly and you know, people have been constantly sort of welcoming us here to help stitch together the private sector and the public sector. And people have seen 
the value of chain analysis even you know before we you know have physical presence here and now that we have you know we've got five people and growing in brazil in the different cities we're seeing you know brand recognition of chain analysis which is awesome to see and you know people understand already like the value that we can have in bridging the gap between the private sector and the government which has been which has been awesome amazing um, amazing yeah well if on that note if, if folks want to engage with you or the the chain analysis latam team what's the what's the best uh, channel for that yeah so we have uh, we have different people in the different cities so you know, we've got brianna in rio and bruno in in brasilia and ugo and a couple of other and johnny campos in 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 sao paulo so like we've got like a bunch of people in the different cities so you can you can look them up but yeah, the best way is honestly to, to get in touch with us on social media, send us an email on the Chain Analysis website. If you've got something that you're like particularly interested in, you can check out our Twitter. We're going to do a lot more stuff. And uh, yeah, we'd love to love to go to meetups and participate in you know, what people have. And yeah, I'm looking forward to coming back to Brazil as well. So. Amazing. Well, Jonathan Levin, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Obrigado, everyone, and thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five-star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.